Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Mark Scandrett, this is our fourth and final response episode to the prime docuseries, Shiny Happy People. I think this is going to be our best episode. I'm just going to say it. Hey, we've been building up a rapport and we've got a lot to chew on with this episode. So much to talk about, Dan. So much. It's just been a real pleasure doing this with you. I'm a little bit. It's definitely bittersweet to me that this is the last one. So thanks so much for being a part of this process. Yeah, I've I've loved dialoguing with you about this too. Can I tell a quick story about Bill Gothard? Yeah, do you want to be even before I kind of set up the anything? Yeah, go for it. Let's get a Gothard story in here. A little caution because this is like a secondhand story, but I did have a friend uh, from high school who went to work at Bill Gothard's headquarters when he mm-hmm. was uh, 19 years old, and he would confirm some of the dynamics that came out in the documentary about a very controlling environment with people just a year or two older exercising extreme authority right and uh working long hours being scolded reprimanded for 
just pl- any kind of playful behavior, letting your hair down or anything, even, even yeah. though it was in, in his, innocent games. But he had a couple of really fascinating stories that I think give some insight into Bill Gothard as a as just an interesting character. Uh, Gothard was known for wearing his IBM suits, you know, yeah. a white shirt, red tie, blue suit. And that was his uniform everywhere at all times. So he said sometimes Bill Gothard would say, let's go hiking. And Gothard would hike in the blue IBM suit. No. And a black pair of wingtips. And oh my gosh. One time they went water skiing and Gothard simply took off his shoes and socks, rolled up his pants and did a beach, uh, a dock start, water skied and then did a beach landing wearing a three piece suit. And he never got fully submerged in the water. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) He could, he could, he could literally walk on water. You know, oh in my a, gosh! It it a it a blue uh, IBM suit, amazing. As long as he, yeah, I guess as long as he controls, you know, all the uh, inputs and outputs, he can. Wow, that's funny. <laughs> Speaking of stories, uh, it probably will make it into the second half. But I spoke last night with a friend of mine who is an attorney about growing up alongside the Joshua generation stuff. So yeah. I've, I've also got some anecdotes from a friend, um, but. Just to remind people, so each of these four episodes, we're doing the first half in the main feed. Anything that Mark and I think is like kind of public information people should have, I do my little PSAs in that first half. And then um, we take a break and and we keep talking. We allow ourselves a little more rope in the second half. And that goes uh, on the patron feed. Or, or rather, if you're a patron, you just get the whole episode, including the first and second half. So That's the same format uh, for this week. Well, I thought this week, actually, we would just start a little bit about overall thoughts on the series, because episode four was the final episode, kind of wrapped things up. I feel like it's really good to have like high quality treatment of these topics. So that was Mm -hmm. just I I appreciated that. The talking head quality for me kind of varies quite a bit from person to person who they chose to interview and you know, how much of a grain of salt I felt like I needed to take what they were saying with. Mm -hmm. I thought that especially in this final episode, which we'll get into, there was too much fear mongering of a, of a leftward audience. And I'll point out where I thought the filmmakers were actually doing a little fear mongering and, you know, sensationalism, whatever, maybe that's the word Mm -hmm. for it. I know you, I know you want to talk about sensationalism today, but overall, I'm very glad that I watched it. I think there was a lot of powerful stuff. I think I learned a lot. I certainly learned a lot about Bill Gothard and, and IBLP. I had known that name. You know, I told that anecdote, I think it was last week about, you know, my dad and his colleagues as therapists uh, who primarily saw a Christian audience. When Gothard would come to town and do his thing, they would set, they would put six weeks down on their calendar and they'd know they'd get a bunch of new clients <laughs> for whom it didn't work. So I knew that story, but I, I had never been to one. I, I, you know, I wasn't really homeschooled. My mom tried for half of a semester once. It didn't really take, you know, so that was cool. I, I overall glad. And I, I've got some quibbles. We'll, we'll talk about basically all those quibbles today. Mm-hmm. I often hear in casual conversation when I mention this or another expose documentary, a common reaction is people either are like, yeah, I love watching the car crash. That was awesome to see somebody taken down. 
or there's a bit of a suspicion about the motives of the producers and film directors. Yeah. Like, and sometimes it goes overboard to like, you know, that's the judgment there, but that they question the motives of the filmmakers and say they're, they were only out to make money off of people's difficult stories and embarrassing moments. So there's some interrogation about that or um, to take it further that this is an attack on faith or Christianity or uh, religion in general. And I think the truth is somewhere in between, like obviously mm -hmm. people have agendas for producing content, but in general, I think what happened, like these documentaries are helpful because they do attempt to tell the, to tell a, a truth that would be covered, otherwise covered up. And it's super empowering for survivors of these kinds of experiences Absolutely. to see that truth told mm -hmm. in public. And it can be very cathartic to see, see, I wasn't the only one. You know, it's really interesting because there's a real difference there between how much in that culture you are and how much you're in the, the broader culture. If you are still in, like, if this kind of show gets smuggled in to the lives of some people who are still kind of in that world, it will be like an atomic bomb going off for them. For me, it's like, oh, another thing about, you know, fucked up Christians. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't, It even if I had, I guess if I had specifically experienced IBLP, it would be very cathartic. But it's not like I am short on... I don't know, examples of, of possible catharsis around unhealthy forms of Christianity. You know, obviously that's partly the, the water that I swim in with this show, but, but even so, like most of my friends who have either deconverted or, or, you know, reframed their faith in some meaningful way, like, it's not like, it's not like we've lacked uh, in the last decade or so for things that to, to think about, you know, with regard to that. So, but if you are in a more controlling environment, then, oh my gosh, it's, it's an oasis. And so that's kind of interesting because you make one product, but it goes out to people in very different circumstances mm -hmm. and it will hit them very differently because of that. Someone close to me felt very in, invalidated when she shared this documentary with her circle of friends who questioned the motives of the yeah. of the filmmaker yeah. and this person's like yeah i don't feel i don't feel like you're seeing me here yeah. i had a similar experience and it wasn't helpful for me and i want some acknowledgement of how i suffered uh yeah. because of the hyper control and patriarchy and things like things like yep uh that's back to mark karras and his unholy huddle which i talk about all the time of like mm -hmm. you know for people who are going through faith change or who need to talk about difficult aspects of their, their faith life or upbringing, you got to find a couple people who just don't have any skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And that's why he calls it the unholy huddle. Cause it often works better if they're just non-religious people, not that yeah. they're going to convince you to be non-religious, but just that they don't have to be defensive because it's not an attack on them or their life experiences yeah. basically. Yeah. With that said, there's got to be space for like nothing. Very few things are black and white in life. And so yeah. this has come up for us a couple of times in our conversation. And many people who have had experiences with IBLP or similar fundamentalist teachings, some aspects of it, they have found helpful. And so sometimes in a documentary portrayal like this, the filmmakers are pr kind of priming us. And I think particular with this one, we're not seeing a lot of 
good potential things about these communities or these teachings. It's totally. And, and I think that they missed a spot there around the Joshua generation stuff, which I was glad to, to talk to my buddy. Cause he, he sort of shed a little bit of light on that and, and confirmed some, some of the intuitions that I, I had not having been involved in that world uh, with him, but okay. So more on all that later. Um, I'm going to give a little synopsis of the episode. Then we're going to do any public service announcement type stuff, yeah. and then we'll continue our discussion. So I can't, I look forward to these synopsises, Dan, because you're so good at it. <laughs> okay. We first get, um, we, we dive straight into Josh Duggar's child pornography case, followed by Jim Bob Duggar's, uh, later in life running for state Senate during Josh's ongoing case, which is a very interesting choice to have made. Then we get to hear about the Joshua Generation project to get basically graduated homeschool kids as adults into positions of power and influence, uh, lawmaking, um, the legal system, including the Supreme Court, other things like that. We get into the use of media by conservative Christians briefly. We talk to Paul and Morgan, a couple of very good looking Christian influencers. I, I should say conservative Christian influencers. And then overall, I think we get the heaviest dose, in my opinion, of fear mongering on the part of the filmmakers aimed at liberal viewers. We get some Duggar family aftermath material, some storylines wrap up in this final episode, like Tia Levings, who ultimately escaped her physically abusive and murder threatening husband. We hear about this big sexual assault lawsuit against Gothard that technically gets thrown out on statute of limitations, but the, there then is like a civil hearing about something or other, and there's some catharsis. Oh, because he countersues. So he countersues, and that gets thrown out based on the credible testimony of the uh, – so the way I understand it, they don't go into detail, but basically – he sues them for defamation, and it sounds like the judge says, no, that's not defamation. This is credible testimony. It's just beyond the statute of limitations, which was at least cathartic and, and um, mm -hmm. I think, uh, really validating for, uh, for his victims. And we get a little shout-out to Faith Deconstruction toward the end, and then we end the episode and series with many of the survivors sort of taking back their agency and using social media, much in the way that the Christian influencers do, by the way to spread their counter Gothard messages and to tell their own stories. So that is the synopsis. Did I miss anything, Mark? Uh, I think you hit the high points. There was a lot in there. There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot in this episode and it was the shortest episode, but they really got a lot in there. Okay. So I've got a three PSAs. I'll try and get through them as quickly as possible. And, and you can add any of your own mm -hmm. in this first part. So it actually so they do a content warning at the beginning of these uh, most of these episodes and especially today it mentioned uh, child pornography and you know there's different rules for television uh, maybe radio there I'm, I'm sure there's rules about what kind of radio shows can air at what times of the day just as there are with with TV and cable cable TV media companies you know are putting out products that could be watched by an entire family and so they have to sort of let parents know like, Hey, you might not want your kids in the room for this, but it got me thinking about trigger warnings in general because they're very common in a lot of left-leaning spaces. Um, and listeners of this show might have noticed that I don't, I don't do them. And there uh, are reasons for that. And I thought I would share those because they, they kind of relate to all this stuff. So there's a recent meta analysis 
on a slew of empirical studies on content or trigger warnings, and it concluded, first of all, that they don't actually work. They have no effect on the emotional response a person viewing the material has when they view it. They are neither more nor less distressed during the viewing if there was a content warning. So it doesn't affect distress. What they do accomplish is they actually increase what's called anticipatory anxiety about what Mm. they are about to view or read. So all they do in terms of lowering or raising distress is they increase distress before the actual content is viewed. And then once they actually view it, their anxiety is the same whether or not they had the trigger warning. So they just worry more going into it. And that's a reason to to be broadly speaking against them. Another reason that I used to be against them, but actually this meta review convinced me is probably not an issue, is that most trauma treatments include a form of exposure therapy. And the idea is that there is this thing called the extinction principle in the brain. And it's one of the most basic laws of neurology, basically, that you expose a brain to a stimulus that causes a certain reaction. And every time you expose that same stimulus, that reaction goes down. It just drops slowly over time. I think that this is part of what makes uh, addictive things become addictive is that you're not getting the same. Don't quote me on that. That I might be wrong. And an avoidance of distressing stimuli around someone's trauma or their grief is actually, uh, it is a symptom of PTSD. The avoidance is so central to that pathology that is a symptom and the avoidance just keeps the symptoms, the other symptoms around because you're not getting that exposure. But it turns out that that's not really a big deal because only 6% of people in one study even take the option to avoid content. And the review authors are talking about another study that actually suggests that people are more likely to engage with something that is marked sensitive or disturbing. So it actually does not appear to produce avoidance. So that worry of mine is not founded based on the, the relevant research. So I, um, Josh is going to put a, there's a pre-published PDF of this meta review. The link will be in the show notes. That's my thing about trigger warnings. Uh, of course, that's a little different than a television show. I don't know. I guess people have learned not to maybe have their kids in the room for some of my episodes and stuff, but I find it's just best to treat people like adults and, and they will be exposed to what they're exposed to. That's kind of the take that that's the tack that I have taken. What trigger warning means is something that was shared brought me in touch with some pain. Mm. And as you alluded to, sometimes we need to revisit those places of pain with a more secure sense of attachment or uh, distance from the event in order for the healing of that memory to occur. So uh, sometimes with trigger warnings, it seems like the idea is like avoiding potentially triggering events, you know, stimuli would be better for me, but actually coming back into awareness of those things with more resiliency and tools can be helpful. Yeah, it's obviously it's done in with good intentions. It's done by people mm-hmm. who are trying to be conscious of survivors and people who have mm-hmm. experienced great trauma. And so, of course, that's fantastic. But I, I would say that a trauma-informed approach would, would be more like, hey, don't avoid this stuff, but rather let's learn some coping skills 
for when you inevitably come up against the stuff that's going to mm-hmm. trigger you. And then that's the growth. So then you learn those skills and you use those skills and then you are more resilient and more equipped to sort of live into the world yeah. after, after this horrible thing has happened to you, which is, of course, not your fault. I recently had an experience where um, I was somewhere with a group of people and we were talking late at night. Next morning, someone says to me, my family member was really triggered by what you said last night. And I immediately thought, the last thing I want to do is hurt anybody. What was it? You know, and at least in this case, well, I said to the person, if tell that person who told you this, that if they feel safe enough to talk to me about this, because I, I, I want to have a dialogue about this. And, and if apology is needed, I want to own, I want to own that. So this person did have the courage to talk to me about it, which I appreciate. And it ended up, it wasn't really like, I don't think I said anything unhelpful, but something I named reminded them of a very painful situation in their life. And it actually ended up giving us an opportunity to process that. And part of healing is having, telling your story and having your emotions mirrored and, and validated, you know, to connect brains. And so what potentially was like a dividing situation ended up be, I'd like to think being part of this person's trajectory of, of healing and growth instead. Totally. Okay. Two more PSAs. The second one is there is again an insinuation through the editing of the show that the sexual repression that Josh Duggar experienced can be directly related to his child pornography criminal actions. Now, this is the, this is kind of my biggest criticism with the show is how loosely they're handling this kind of stuff here. And I'm sure there is some effect of sexual repression in conservative cultures that can lead many individuals to act out in various ways. I mean, I have a lot of anecdotal evidence of that from my purity culture days, right? But the type of human psychological either experiences that shape it or whatever it's born with naturally that leads one to sexually enjoy the pain of children is not really on the same plane as normal sexual desires to have sex, to have an orgasm, to follow these natural desires into sexual activity, you know, with consenting partners. I, I just, it's getting real sticky there where they're making these things. And, and there is some evidence around this stuff. So if we drop down, so Josh specifically, and this was probably the hardest part of the episode to watch was like the words that flashed on the screen that described the type of child pornography that he had on his uh, hard drive, which was abhorrent. If we drop down just to, to standard level child pornography, not necessarily this sort of torturous pain inducing type, there are studies we can look at. And I'm drawing from an article that pulls from multiple studies by the Innocent Lives Foundation. There are three reasons that researchers have found that predators will view child pornography. Number one is for sexual gratification. That is, they are pedophilic. And we already talked about this in a previous episode. There's genetics and epigenetics. There are differences in brain structure, frontal lobe differences, temporal lobe, white matter differences. There are hormonal differences and there are developmental differences, ADHD, autism, lower IQs all have some sort of relationship. And there are childhood experiences, including head and brain injuries. There's no obvious causal connection from the literature 
with conservative or sexually repressed upbringings into pedophilia. The second reason that that they will watch this material is for emotional escape or distraction. These perpetrators are trying to put out some kind of emotional fire inside themselves and or to distract themselves from difficulties in their lives. Now, humans engage in all kinds of unhealthy behaviors all the time to escape and distract ourselves. This is this part is not particular to child pornographers. Drugs and alcohol, regular porn, cigarettes, fatty or sweet foods, starting fights with people in our lives, gambling, you name it. We engage in all kinds of stuff to put out emotional fires. So the fact that child pornography is used in the same way is not a surprise. I don't know that we could draw some sort of connection between now, now maybe you could say that Josh Duggar and other people like him have certain emotional fires because of stunting in the way that they were raised or something like that. You can, you can make a kind of an end around argument there. I suppose the third reason that comes from the research is control. Often viewers are trying to gain a feeling of control over their own past of sexual abuse, either physically or by being exposed to sexual content too early in life. Now, we don't have any indication that Josh Duggar himself was sexually abused. And if anything, we might reasonably assume that strict conservative environments are on the whole less likely to expose children to sexually explicit imagery at a developmentally inappropriate age, right? There's all kinds of safeguards against even stuff that you and I would think is very tame. The National Institutes of Health released a report a few years ago about early exposure to sexually explicit media, also linked in the show notes, and they found a causal link between exposure in early adolescence to sexually explicit media and risky sexual behaviors later in life, like early first sexual experiences, unsafe sex, and higher partner change rate as a young person. Now, conservative cultures are not more likely to result in early exposure, all things equal. So again, I just think the filmmakers are playing a little fast and loose with who they're allowing to comment on what, with what level of evidence, how they're editing to sort of make some, you know, assumptions or, or make connections for people that aren't there, despite, of course, very real concerns about purity culture, patriarchal control, et cetera, uh, which we are covering throughout the series. So there's my second PSA. Any thoughts on that, Mark? So many thoughts. One is, it seems like People who struggle with child pornography or pedophilia, we feel we feel a sense of righteous indignation and permission to have contempt on these individuals because of the amount of pain that results in mm-hmm. the uh, survivor's yeah. life. Destroyed lives and absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so we want to be for the 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 survivor, but I think I think that if we're going to have a an elevated consciousness about, about this, we'd also want to have a tremendous amount of compassion on a person who this is their life struggle. And, you know, I remember a, a poet friend of mine, Michael Bourne, on a stage in the UK once saying, like, every day that that person who this is their struggle, who says no to their impulses, they're being a, a hero, like they should mm-hmm. like wow, the, to, to have a desire or set of psychological mechanisms that would lead you towards something that was such a, a, a horrible behavior, you know, takes a lot of courage to, to, to live with integrity when that's your struggle. 
Yeah, I I think that that that's one tack, and I and I think it's important to have compassion. There's some interesting stuff, by the way, in the therapeutic community uh, where I've heard a couple people say this that that the kind of accepted wisdom is if you are going to regularly work with either perpetrators of sexual abuse or victims mm-hmm. of sexual abuse, you most people say you got to pick one because it's mm-hmm. actually really hard to to yeah. switch back and forth mentally. But if you are going to work with the perpetrators, like how do we reduce? And th- this is the other tack that I was going to say is just, okay, so we're concerned about child pornography. Then what's the best way to re- reduce it? And mm-hmm. the best way is to follow the best evidence for why it happens and how to stop it. And, you know, if, if we do have perpetrators in our networks, you know, whether law enforcement or the um, penal system, if we've got state psychological services for them, whatever, we should just be using the best tools we have to change, help them change, you know, Mm -hmm. and if they're incapable of change to keep them away from children. Like, so there's just a very practical tack here too. And I think insinuating that homeschooling leads to child pornography is not particularly helpful. That's, that's not quite what they're insinuating, but it's not like a huge leap in watching the show. And so I would find that to be unhelpful. And that's why I'm kind of calling it Mm -hmm. out. Um, Okay. Mm -hmm. We're, it's taken a while to get through these. This one will be quick. Last one, Bobby Holt. So this is the wife of the husband wife duo who were also in the show and close friends of Michelle and Jim Bob. She gave this really specific reason for when she was called to testify in the Josh Duggar case, why she had to tell the truth. And she said, I have to stand before God one day, you know, and and God's going to know what I said in this courtroom. Now, obviously, people can misuse language like that. They can essentially lie and use Christianese to cover their tracks. But I think that Bobby Holt was being authentic. And whether or not she was, there is a very well-cited study from 2007 that found that religious priming, so being reminded, getting people to think about religion, decreased cheating on a test. Mm. And this is causal evidence. This is not uh, associated evidence or correlational evidence. And a later meta-analysis of 94 religious priming studies found that getting people to think about religion does not tend to have an effect for non-religious people, but it does have an effect for religious people. Now it also include it, it does increase some negative attitudes like racism, outgroup bias, stuff like that. But for religious people, thinking about their faith leads to increases causally, right? In these uh, various games that they will have people engage in, in these uh, priming experiments. It leads to causal increases in honesty, in sharing, in cooperation, and in a willingness to volunteer time and effort. And I, I like that they kept that in. And I was wondering earlier if, if I thought the show was anti-Christianity as a whole. And I, I think this part with Bobby Holt would be a counter argument that it is anti-Christianity because she gives a very straightforward conservative Christian reason why she had to tell the truth in court. And the research backs it up. I have no reason to disbelieve her. She did a hard thing. And uh, that's one of the benefits of religion, frankly, as, as I see it. My one additional PSA would be about the documentary's attribution of motive to behavior. Yeah. So we have a couple of examples of it in this episode. One was that Jim Bob did not fully acknowledge 
Josh's behavior because he was trying to protect his financial empire and his political career. And whether or not something like this happens in the public eye or away from it, in most families that I've I've interacted with who something like this happens in the family, there is an impulse to want to minimize the severity of what happened yeah. in a way that ends up seeming like the perpetrators protected and the, the survivor is, is, is not fully protected or acknowledged. So yeah. I just, you know, it happened, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we can say it's because uh, Jim Bob's hungry for money or want or power. It, families just tend to behave that way. Yeah, I think it's probably it's probably all of the above for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't know the percentage on that. I'd, I'd love to know. I, it would be probably hard to survey people accurately and get this. But but my guess would be that 80 or 90 percent of families will try and handle this within the family when it happens, mm-hmm. if they think that that's at all possible, mm-hmm. maybe in like much like. First of all, it's also it's also hard to remember that what Josh did with his sisters is different than what he was eventually convicted for in court, right? So it's still they're they're both awful. And we don't know what would have happened if Josh Duggar at that age had been found with child pornography, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh maybe it would have been the same. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Jim Bob and Michelle would have would have done the exact same thing to to try and cover it up. But yeah, there's all that ickiness of kind of having the girls go on TV and downplay it. Mm-hmm. That's that's obviously from a previous episode, but that stuff was really difficult to watch. And ugh. okay, I'm getting sidetracked now by the uh, yuckiness of it all. One other thing I'd add is about maybe attribution of motive would be like. uh, Bill Gothard's behavior towards the um, young women who came to work uh, with him. Mm -hmm. The idea is that he was fully conscious of what he was doing and manipulating and grooming. And I'm not sure in every situation that the person is fully aware of what they're doing. I'm not saying they're not culpable, but Mm -hmm. sometimes we, we'd like to push it towards being premeditated and I'm aware of many situations where the person was operating in a way out of their subconscious and wasn't fully aware of what they were doing until later. And I just think that's a little nuance that's helpful to it. That might be yeah. helpful to acknowledge. I know it's a little bit controversial. Well, but- no, I, I mean, it, I think that there's something to that psychologically. Certainly we are not as people fully aware of the destructive consequences of our actions as we are taking them in many cases. Mm -hmm. However, I I think I would probably be on the other side for the purposes of the docu, the docu series. I don't think for the purposes of the docu series, it really matters. I I think that, you know, we get the, we get the reports of him, like obviously having an erection uh, under his pants. That's visible he knows he has an erection if that's mm-hmm. the case. And then we have the lawsuit and we have mm-hmm. the, the testimony, some of which went uh, beyond simply having a boner in front of them and, and went to, you know, forms mm-hmm. of assault. And, you know, so if, if we have a judge and again, we don't have the judge's direct words, but assuming that we can take the account of the judge at face value, if that stuff's credible, 
then, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I think how conscious he was or not becomes less material to me. It's almost like that's a, a really interesting other documentary I'd like to see about mm-hmm. sort of what you might call levels of conscious awareness in people yeah. in these environments. I think that that's fascinating. That's not what this show was about. So I, and I don't think they could have credibly covered that topic either. Mm-hmm. I think you'd need, you'd need like some heavy hitting psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, on the call sheet for something like that. I, I, I think the reason why I bring it up is that um, so often you have religious leaders behaving badly and there's the assumption yeah. that, they had mostly bad motives, but I, mm-hmm. I think there's might be something more psychologically complex about kind of a, a split consciousness. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It makes me think of John Ortberg from, from Menlo Presbyterian in California, who, he, you know, I think he's now resigned. He was a big deal um, pastor in the Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and his son, it, it came out later that his son was minor attracted and he knew it. And he didn't believe that his son had done anything to do that, but he kept, he allowed his son to continue to be in youth Mm -hmm. ministry. So John Ortberg's, I don't think his motives then were purely keep my empire of my -hmm. pastorship and my research career going. Like I, I think he was being a, a dad and he was allowing his being a dad to cloud his better judgment of like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter, man. You just can't like, you just can't do that. So, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there is something there for sure. But at the end of the day, he needed to not have his, his son in, in ministry over, with children. If he knew that, like, that's just yeah. basic responsibility. And maybe it's hard for our brains to get around being both in interpersonal relationships, but also part of systems and structures that require certain things of us. Yeah. And I think it's partly what makes church life problematic is that it's both family and close relationships and a government regulated entity that requires certain things uh, and behaviors from people. Here's something I'd like to make sure we get in, in the first half in the main feed episode. So when we, when we talk about the Joshua generation, there's all this scary music and they're talking about how there was this concerted effort, like a plot to like take these young people and train them up to be really effective, you know, lawyers and, and politicians and rhetoricians and, and people who are advancing uh, this conservative political agenda. I don't agree with that conservative political agenda. And, and I think that there are some interesting and, and difficult to pin down issues around what types of political agenda or moral agenda are appropriate to sort of steep children in. But I will just say this, like I was chatting with my, my buddy who's the lawyer and who was kind of grew up in, in some of this world. And he, he lives in California and he said, there are social justice oriented elementary schools in Berkeley, California right now. No one is calling those evil. But they are basically starting young and they are specifically saying it's important that we raise up children who understand these issues and who are trained in them to make this world a better place. And that is at least to some degree the exact same thing that that the Joshua generation Mm -hmm. is doing. 
you could even argue that a, a lot of the sort of Ivy Leagues and some of these sort of more elite coastal colleges are doing what the Joshua generation is doing, but on a yeah. liberal side. And I, I, most of me thinks, and I have some concerns, which we'll talk about in the second half, some concerns with the Joshua generation stuff, but mostly I just think this is just literally democracy. In mm-hmm. a democracy, adults have the right to set up institutions of education and training for young people that will turn them into successful advocates for their political views. That is just, it's democracy. And so if we think that that's bad, then we should just be doing the same thing. And we should be as well organized as they are, if it is an us, them Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. And that, that felt like, and it was just so ominous, you know, the music and, and all the shots and stuff. And I was like, I don't know, man, this just seems like democracy to me. Yeah. Yeah, I picked up on the same thing and concur with you. I think as well, maybe a, a nuance to that is that the conservative views tend to be easily bias confirming, although that that can be on either the left or the right. I, where yeah. <laughs> we lo- we, we are more convinced by our own arguments than the opposite ones, right? I don't think there's any conservative liberal divide on that psychological yeah. reality, personally. But maybe... What we can observe is that conservative groups tend to provide more simple binary answers that are more easy to organize people around. That's uh, I I waffle on that. If that's true, it is true at the level of political rhetoric for the masses. Mm -hmm. But it's not true at the level of starting debate societies. Right. That the, the whole debate societies are for people to be able to consider many viewpoints, pick the most effective one, even if they're not interested in truth, if they're only interested in persuasion, still learning the the art of persuasion and considering multiple arguments and which one has the greatest persuasive weight, the, the actual training of the would-be leaders, those are mostly things I would like people to learn, young people to learn. Mm-hmm. So I think that if what you're saying is accurate, it is more at the level of the talk radio hosts who mm-hmm. are getting the, the people who are working 40 hours a week, not so much at the level of the, you know, civics and rhetoric training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could talk about what my buddy brought up with regard to that briefly, if we want to just do that while we're here. So he was in a debate group that was strongly associated with Joshua Generation, and he was homeschooled. He was not under Gothard's teachings Uh, He had a funny anecdote. He said where one time his dad had gotten a Gothard book, he sat down with him and one of his siblings and their dad, and they were reading through it. And there there was a part where Gothard said, boys should not wear jeans without pockets on the back because that's too feminine. And at that point, apparently, like... He or he and his brother, his sibling or whatever, were like, Dad, what the hell is this? He probably didn't use that word. And then the dad was like, yeah, this is weird. And they never talked about it again. So he he narrowly avoided Gothard. Um, But he was in a a pretty big homeschooling culture, and he knew people that were involved with Gothard and people who ended up in the kind of Joshua generation stuff. And what my buddy said was all that kind of civic training and all that stuff. And and my friend is now a law partner. Like he Mm – he – is grateful for that debate experience, right? It, it literally trained him to become a successful lawyer. And he's like, that part was all great. The one thing that he felt like was rough was just a lot of burden put on children. 
Like it's, mm. it's our children's and our teenagers job to defend freedom and truth. It's all on them to grow up and do these great things. Mm-hmm. And what my buddy said was like, look, high expectations of your children is great. In fact, you know, uh, Josh can put a link to the episode about authoritative versus nurturant religion. And that actually comes out of parenting literature uh, around um, uh, nurturant, uh, basically, some of the words are different, but the ideal parenting style from this research is um, high expectations, but high warmth. So you can have Mm -hmm. high expectations and low warmth. That's like authoritarian. You can have high warmth and low expectations. That's permissive parenting. And nurturant parenting is high expectations, but also high warmth. And that's basically what I think my buddy was saying. And so that's good. But then like if they don't majorly succeed, a sense Mm -hmm. that they have failed their mission, like God's mission to them. And some of he also said some of the issues that these kind of political footballs are around are kind of more adult oriented issues anyway, like abortion, sexuality issues. Can you really have a formed opinion about these things when you're young? At the same time, I think that applies to the social justice oriented schools in Berkeley, for instance, Mm -hmm. an eight year old cannot have a nuanced opinion about trans issues or abortion for that matter. And yet if we are training our children, you know, so it's, it's tricky and they were not, the filmmakers were not interested in the nuances of child formation uh, via parents around the parents' value systems, which is something Mm -hmm. that all good parents are engaged in to some degree, inculcating our own values in our children, it gets real messy there and real tricky. And my main thing with the show is that they, they didn't make it messy and tricky. They, they oversimplified it. It makes me think of, I remember what it was like being told I was destined to be a world changer. Were you told you were a world changer, Dan? Uh, thank goodness. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, I was, (laughs) and I'd go to conferences as a 13, 14 year old and like the future depends on you. How are you wow. going to make your stand for Christ in this generation? I mean, I guess and, I did have some of that. Yeah. Now that you phrase yeah. it that way. Yeah. And I remember a feeling I got of like destiny from that. Mm. But then I was on the other side of it when I was in my twenties and I would host groups of high school, middle school and high school students from the suburbs in inner city, San Francisco. And they would come with this elevated sense of their agency as world changers. And I noticed they couldn't learn anything because they, they were convinced. And so we actually changed the name of what we were doing. We called it learning and serving trips. And we have to reorient and say, your, your role here isn't to help. It's to learn because you're, you're 14. You, you don't have skills. You don't have the life experience in order to meet the needs of a very challenging urban neighborhood. You're just here to listen, be curious, and try and resonate with God's heart. And when we when we primed it differently, instead of saying you're here to make a difference, we noticed people re- really being able to engage better uh, with our neighbors their learning and was up and because they were open to new information in a way that not feeling like I'm the answer didn't, didn't do. Okay. I have like some quite speculative thoughts on that, that I will, I am forced to save, (laughs) save for the second half. Um, I want to give you just the mic one more time before for anything, before we switch to our second half, 
I want to get into more of your personal experience and all that stuff in that second yeah. half, but anything that should be up front here. No, I just got echoes um, in the Joshua generation stuff of my experiences with the fellowship and the national prayer breakfast, not exactly the same group, but in a related sense of organized influence around politics and culture. Yeah. Okay. So for main feed folks, uh, this is where we leave you. And this is where we, we leave you after four episodes with, with Mark Scantrett. We will have links to uh, a link to Mark's website. And if you want to get involved with any of this stuff, we just one more time, will you briefly relay what that stuff is? And because people's last chance to kind of hear from you. Sure. You can take a look at markscandrett.com or reimagine.org. I do spiritual coaching and also we um, host these online labs of a dozen to two dozen people that work on belonging and becoming together. Very cool. All right. I'll see you on the other side, Mark, on the patron feed. All right. Mm-hmm.